Our sermon today will be taken from John 11, verse 17 to 37. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Thus saith the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Joanna. So friends, we're in John chapter 11, and we're almost about to reach the part of the Bible that a lot of you maybe know, and is the story of Jesus resurrecting Lazarus. And when Gray, uh, our other elder, um, preached on the first part of the story last week, he said something really peculiar. He said, this is one of those sections in the book that John really draws the line, whether someone believes in Jesus Christ's claims about himself or not. I didn't really know why he said that until I studied our passage today and I saw what he meant. We haven't reached the part where Lazarus is resurrected yet, but for now, we're at a part where Lazarus' sisters, Martha and Mary, were upset at Jesus. They're very disappointed, and they indirectly rebukes Jesus. And in the way that Jesus responds back to them, he just, he pretty much piles up everything, all the things you can think about that's controversial about Christianity, and he piles it up in one, in this, in his, in his response to them. In his response, he claims to be God in flesh. That's a controversial claim. He claims to be the only way to God and the only way of having true life. That's a controversial claim. And if that wasn't enough, he added on that God is a wrathful God. That's a controversial claim too. He just, he piles it up. He draws the line. And the readers is put on a crossroads. And a lot is at stake for the readers. Some of you here are Christians and you've embraced Jesus Christ's claim about who he is and you've received him for who he's revealed himself to be in the scriptures. And if so, I pray that his word comforts you today and humbles you as you're reminded of the gospel and the God of love who's died for you. But some of us here may still be exploring. You may still try to be figuring out what Christianity is all about. And after the sermon, you might not yet fully embrace all that Jesus is saying about himself. 
And if that's the case, I'd love to explore any questions you might have. Come up to me after the sermon. I'd love to talk. But nonetheless, the words you're about to hear Jesus say is, might prove to be a bit daunting and disruptive to you because he's making a bold claim. He's saying that nothing else can give you true life. No matter how moral or good or religious you are, And we'll see in this passage, he says that unless we receive and are in union with him, the source of life, by his definition, we're still dead. But perhaps, there's some of you here at the moment, you're still exploring Christianity, but after hearing Jesus' claims today, for some reason, it'll sink in. And if so, your world's about to be rocked. I'm not just being melodramatic here. The hymn we sung earlier, it was written by Isaac Watts and had some pretty dramatic lyrics to it. We didn't, we didn't sing it um, during the hymn, but there, there's, a, there's a stanza in the hymn that he says this, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. What happened to Isaac Watts? His world was rocked by a redemptive story that we're about to see, by a person that we're about to encounter. I pray this be the case for you. Three things I want to point out from Jesus' dialogue with Mary and Martha. First, Jesus, the living God. Second, Jesus, the grieving man. Third, Jesus, the suffering God-man. Jesus, the living God. Jesus, the grieving man. Jesus, the suffering God-man. Let's, let's jump in our first point. Jesus, the living God. So in our passage today, we see Jesus interact both with Martha and Mary, two grieving sisters. They've both lost their brother, Lazarus. They're very upset. And now it's interesting to see and take note that we see in Mary and Martha's indirect rebuke to Jesus, we see the, the, the words that they said were the exact same words. Not just the same uh, phrase, but down to the word. Let's look at what Martha said to Jesus in verse 21. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. What did Mary say in verse 32? Same exact thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Literally the same exact words down to the Greek syntax. It's the same. Yet Jesus responds differently to both of them. Why? Same exact situation, same exact grief, same exact rebuke. But his answer was different, totally different. Why? Because Jesus wanted to reveal to them through his answer his true identity and who he was. Now, here's what I'm tempted to say. Jesus, why you got to make it about yourself? (laughs) There are two sisters here. They're grieving. They're sad. Just comfort them. Just mourn with them. Why do you have to make it about your identity? And how is that going to help them in any way in this time of grief? But then you see who Jesus actually claims to be and what he's able to do. And you see how the person of Jesus is actually the only and best source of comfort that these people can have. It is the most loving thing he could have done. So, okay, how does Jesus respond? How does he reveal his identity to them? Let's, let's take a look. First, Jesus corrected their misconception of being a mere man, of just being a human being. Okay, um, where do we see this? Look at how, um, or, or how do we know that they thought Jesus was just a mere man? Look at how they both rebuked Jesus. They said, Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, if you had just been here, think about what that phrase implies. It implies that Jesus' power is limited only to healing the sick and not raising the dead. If you've just been here, now it's too late. Things are done. 
There he's dead. You can't reverse this. Sure, maybe God can, but you, mere man, it's, it's too late for you. He's just a miracle worker to them. And Jesus immediately corrects them. But first, let's start with Jesus' response to Martha. Verse 26. How did Jesus respond to Martha? I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now, how is that a correction of their perception of Jesus' identity? It might not be immediately obvious to us, but Jesus here just made an incredible claim, and Martha knows it. Jesus here just claimed to be God. How? By saying the first two words, the phrase that we see him say in verse 26, I am. The phrase I am is a very famous phrase in the Old Testament, and we know that Martha knows her Old Testament. How do we know that? Look at what she said in verse 24. Jesus said, um, your brother will rise again. And Martha responds in verse 24, I know that my brother will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. That's a very accurate understanding of the end times that the Old Testament teaches. In other words, that was proper Old Testament eschatology that Martha just said. I know my brother will, will rise in the end times. So you know that Martha knows her Old Testament. And if, if we know our Old Testament, then we would know too the phrase I am is significant, and, Mar and Martha knew this. It's a famous phrase that Yahweh, God, used to describe himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. Let me read it out. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And when Jesus here says that, I am the resurrection of the life, Martha knew exactly what he meant. Jesus is making this bizarre claim that he is the same God that spoke to Moses. He is the great I am. I don't know. That feels like a bit of a stretch. I mean, just because somebody said the phrase I am, it doesn't mean that he's claiming to be the great I am. It doesn't mean that he's claiming to be God. Of course not. But this isn't the first time Jesus said this. There's been five other times so far in the book of John where Jesus said the phrase, I am, and he followed that phrase with a particular attribute that was attributed to the divine attributes of God in the Old Testament. Chapter 6, I am the bread of life. Chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Chapter 10, I am the door. Then again in chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. Who was the good shepherd in the Old Testament? Yahweh. And now in chapter 11, I am the resurrection, and the life. And if you're not convinced yet, you read, you read Mark chapter 14, and you see why Jesus was crucified. Is because during his trial with the Pharisees before all the, uh, uh, all the Jews, he said the words, the phrase again, I am. And that's all it took. They tore their robes, and they crucified him. Jesus here is claiming to be Yahweh, to be the same exact God that appeared to Moses in the Old Testament, whose glory wrapped Sinai with fire and whose glory shook the very foundations of that mountain. I am he. Well, that's just crazy. I can't believe that. That's a bizarre claim to make, but then you look at the history of the early church, and it's got to make you think. You see something that is unheard of. You see Jesus' Jesus's early followers, all of them, were willing to die for this claim. And some of them were crucified, burned, John, the author of this book, was um, cast out to Patmos and, and died in exile. Tens and thousands of the early Christian Jews who held on to his claims were persecuted. 
Now I won't get into gory details here because we have young ones with us. But Roman history tells us that King Nero and other rulers of the uh, uh, Roman age, what they did to those who held on to this claim wasn't pretty. Yet they didn't let it go, that he is God coming in flesh. Well, you know, people die for their religion all the time. It doesn't mean that if somebody dies for their religion, that makes their religion true. Yeah, you're right, but you've got to remember, there wasn't a religion yet back then. There was not, no Christianity back then. There was no institutional church back then. They didn't die for a religion. They died for a person. For Jesus. And let me just say one more thing. Let's be careful into not falling into cultural snobbery. Don't, don't say, yeah, people back then, you know, pre-scientific age, pre-modern enlightenment, they, they're more naive and gullible. They'd believe in anything. No, they weren't. They weren't naive and gullible. The Jews were the most staunch skeptics of the day. If anything, the Jews would have been the most skeptical people back then in Jesus' day. See, there are other cultures and religions back then, like the Greeks, that had a category for the gods, like Zeus, coming down to earth in flesh. That stories like that, that have a category to put that in. And there are other very popular Eastern religions back then, like Hinduism, that had deities like Krishna and Rama, who would come down to earth all the time. All these people had categories for that, but those cultures would have, would have had this understanding of divine coming on earth was normal, but the Jews, the Jews had nothing in their culture or religion. You read the Old Testament, and for them, God is holy, holy, holy. God is transcendent. God is out the hair. To get to him, you've got to go through all these temple rituals and sacrifice things and be cleansed, and only then can you approach him. Out of all the cultures that existed back then, the Jews had no category of God coming down as flesh on earth. They would have been the most skeptical people on earth. They weren't naive and gullible people. Yeah, the reason for their skepticism is different than ours today, but the intensity of it was at least the same, if not more. Yet the early Christians, who were Jewish, embraced his claim and gave their lives for it. That he is the great I am. He is the resurrection and the life. And that creature cannot find life elsewhere unless it is in relationship with him, the resurrection and the life. And they really embrace his words in verse 27. If you believe this, if you receive this claim, if you have a relationship with me, you will never die. You'll have eternal life. But hold on. Didn't you just say that Jesus' early followers all died? <laughs> Didn't you say that Nero and all these Roman emperors killed them? John, who wrote this book, died. Lazarus in the story was dead. How then can Jesus say, everyone who believes in me shall never die? It is here, friends, that God, Jesus, the God of life, is redefining what life means. What is life? True life. Look at verse 25 to 26. He says, whoever believes in me, Though he die, yet he shall live. Though he die, yet he shall live. Meaning, life, true life, goes beyond mere physical vitality. Though he die, in other words, though his heart stops beating, though his lungs stop working, yet he shall live. What does that mean? Jesus is saying there is life that goes beyond the body's ability to function. By the way, that's what Paul meant in 2 Corinthians 4.16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Hebrews 11 speaks of it too. It talks about all these believers uh, who have long died. 
in the Old Testament. And then Hebrews chapter 12, the very next chapter, they talk about these believers as if they are a great cloud of witnesses that are cheering us on in our walk of faith. The imagery is, is we're marathon runners and they're in the stands, rooting, cheering us on. Keep going. Keep going. Everyone who believes in me, though they die, they shall live. These saints are alive, cheering you on. What is Jesus doing? He's pulling back the curtains for Martha, for you and I today, and he's saying, I am the great I am. Let me show you and define you what true life is. It goes beyond physical vitality. Though they die, though Lazarus is dead, Martha, if he's united with me, if he has a relationship with me, the God of life, then he's alive. There's a pastor that... um, uh, uh, had his, his mother died. His mother was a, was a believer. He, she placed her faith in Christ uh, and what he did for her on the cross. And the pastor's son was sad. And after the funeral, uh, the son asked the pastor, did grandma die? And the pastor said, son, you know, um, you know sometimes when, when, when the sun is shining at you and, and a big truck passes by you and the shadow kind of hits you and you get really scared because you think the truck hit you, but it really didn't. It was the shadow of the truck that hit you. So that's what happened to grandma. The shadow of death hit her. She died, but she didn't truly die. Son, she's alive. She's alive. And, and look, these aren't flowery words to comfort a young child. This is robust biblical orthodoxy. Son, Grandma is alive. You see how that can be comforting for Martha? For us, who may have loved ones in Christ who have passed on? Now, here's what's scary, though. I mean, it's encouraging and it's comforting for Martha to hear these words that those who have trusted in Jesus and and Christ and his claims have eternal life and is alive even if their heart stops beating and their lungs stop contracting, they're still alive. But on the other hand, this statement should be absolutely bone-chilling for some of us because the other side of the coin must also then be true. This, this means, this must mean that there are those who do have working vitals. There are those who do have a beating heart, who do have contracting lungs, yet by Jesus' definition is dead. Right? If he's right, that life is categorized first and foremost by believing in him, verse 25, 26 says, not by beating heart. That means the other side of the coin is also true. Those who have a beating heart might not be truly alive. I told you he piles up all the controversial things in this passage. But why? What's the reason for their death? Ah, here it comes. You might think, here's where the pastor beats us down and shames us and guilts us and say they're dead because they're not moral enough. They're dead because they're not religious enough. They're dead because they're just not living good enough. No, that's not at all what our passage says. Let's go to point two. Jesus, the grieving man. Jesus is revealing us here a truth that the Bible has been talking about from Genesis to Revelation, that personal religiosity and personal morality is not what gives us life. That's clear throughout the book of John and emphasize again in our passage that I remember Who were the ones that rejected Jesus? Who were the ones who rejected his claims throughout the whole book? The Pharisees did. 
Friends, the Pharisees aren't morally corrupt, unreligious people. They believed in a God. They did a lot of good things. They were very religious. Look, look, at, look at verse 19. What were the Jews, the people who rejected Jesus, what were they described as doing here in verse 19? And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. These Jews, the same people that rejected Jesus throughout the whole book of John and chapters 8 to 10, and you see them now consoling Mary and Martha. You see how sensitive and kind they are? They were mourning with, with them. They were weeping with Mary and Martha. They were comforting them. And by the way, this isn't just some quick visit. They were doing something called Shiva. Shiva is a seven-day tradition where if, if a relative you know die, or a friend you know has a relative or a friend that dies, you go to their place for seven days. And you mourn with them for seven days. People would rally together and share the pain of the grieving neighbor. They provide food and comfort and listen to them. They'd be crying shoulder for them. They'd actually put their lives on pause for seven days to grieve with their friend. When's the last time we've done that? That's not all my sick days from work. To give it to my, to my grieving friend, that's what they did. They weren't immoral, irreligious, insensitive atheists. They were moral, kind, sensitive, self-sacrificing, others-prioritizing, God-fearing people. So how in the world, why in the world would Jesus categorize them as still dead? What's the problem? Were they not kind enough? Were they not sacrificial enough? Were they not moral and religious enough? No, they're extremely kind and moral and religious, but their morality and their kindness and their religiosity became the very thing that killed them. Because in their morality and kindness and religiosity, they become the very thing that made them think they don't need Jesus. In other words, their religion is what made them reject the God of life. I can save myself. I can be good enough to find life in myself. A pastor once had the guts to do something I will never have the guts to do. He went to Columbia College in New York, the most postmodern place on earth, maybe. And he was put on a hot seat. He was drilled by two professors in Columbia College. One was an atheist. I don't know uh, what the other one was but they weren't Christians, and he was put on a hot seat, drilled by two professors in Columbia College in front of all the students of Columbia College, and he was asked a bunch of questions, and one of the questions, it was very emotionally charged. And this is me quoting him. I'm not saying these words, and I don't, if, if, if there's some offensiveness that come from it, that um, that's what was what happened then, and that's what he said. And he, and he kind of attacked the pastor, and he said this. Does the Bible say having same-sex marriage sends you to hell? How do you answer that? He answered very wisely. He said, well, let me tell you, being straight doesn't get you to heaven either. What's he trying to do? He's trying to get people to see what the Bible is actually saying. You can phrase that in many ways. Uh, I don't know, pick, pick another thing you think is, 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 is sinful or, or whatever it is you, you categorize as that. You know, does adultery send you to hell? Well, having sexual self-control isn't what gets you to heaven. Do drugs and alcohol get you to hell? Well, being sober isn't what gets you to heaven. Does financial corruption get you to hell? Well, having financial integrity isn't what gets you to heaven either. Or, or maybe something more culturally relevant to us, we can rephrase the question in this way. Does going to a mosque or a temple or a Catholic mass send you to hell? Well, listen. Going to church 
doesn't send you to heaven either. At the end, the pastor clarifies what sends you to hell is self-righteousness. Thinking that you can be your own Lord and your own Savior. In other words, he's saying this. You can be the most financially responsible, sober, and well-behaved churchgoer that's ever walked planet Earth, which is pretty much every single person in the story, and still be dead. Because your religiosity has fooled you to thinking that you don't need a Savior, that you can depend on yourself for life. You don't need the God of life for life. This is what Martin Luther calls the sin beneath the sin. Martin Luther, one of the reformers, the fathers of the Reformation, describes sin as incurvatus in se. That's Latin for saying it's, it's a curving inward. It's, it's this gruesome picture of somebody so self-addicted, self-narcissistic, self-reliant, self-dependent, to where we reject the need to rely on the God for, of life for life. And religious people are the best at this. We flock around our religiosity saying we don't need God. And this is what made Jesus angry. He was, he was filled with anger. What? Where was Jesus angry? Look at how he responded to, to Mary in verse 33. Same, same grief, same rebuke, different response. Uh, verse 24, he said he gave Martha this Christological lesson about who he is and how I'm the great I am. But to Mary, verse 35, he wept. He cried. Why? Because he's filled with an overwhelming sense of grief and wrath. Where do we see that? Look at verse 33. When Jesus saw her, uh, Mary weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, greatly troubled here is more than just being sad. The Greek, eterasen, the phrase that's translated in our English uh, Bibles as deeply troubled has actually more of a connotation of, of anger and of, of wrath, of, of pure hatred. And why was Jesus angry? Well, if you saw what Jesus saw, you'd be crying in anger too. Try to look at the scene that Jesus is in with the view of life that Jesus just gave us about what life and death is, who's alive and who's truly dead, that it's beyond just a beating, a beating heart and working lungs, but it's about trusting in Jesus and who he is as a source of life, and if that's your definition of life, trusted in Christ, not in, not in breathing, a beating heart, you look at the scene, you'd be sad and angry too. Why? Let me show you. If your definition of life is merely a beating heart and working lungs, here's how you're going to see this scene. You're going to see a bunch of people and one dead body, Lazarus. But if your definition of life is believing in Christ and who he claims to be, then what you would see is something totally different. Nobody in the story believes in Jesus. Nobody in the story trusted in him. Mary and Martha just viewed him as a miracle worker. If you had just been here, you would have cured him from illness. But now you're too late. Only God can save him from death, not you. And the Jews disbelieved Jesus too. Look at verse 37. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? The same cynicism that Mary and Martha had, that he's just a miracle worker, was also regarded by the Jews. No one here believed Jesus as God. No one here believed Jesus as a source of life. So what did Jesus see then? When he looked at this scene, what did he see? The scenery changed, doesn't it? It's not just one dead body and a bunch of people who are alive. What did he see? 
he saw everybody there was dead. Everybody there was still dead. A commentator said of this, how many states here, the tomb of Lazarus was not the only place of death. What Jesus saw here was that the whole world was a tomb in waiting. No one believed in him. They were all still dead by his definition. And this brought him to tears. Tears that came from the depths of grief and the heights of wrath. But Jesus isn't a God of wrath, right? He's a God of love. God isn't a wrathful God. He's a loving God. He's the God of love. Yes, absolutely. But see, you can't have a God of love unless you also have a God of wrath. It's impossible. Let me show you. Uh, my last sermon, I talked about the case of Larry Nasser, uh, who was, um, this unfortunate incident happened. It was, it was terrible. It was, it's, it's, it's heart drenching that he sexually abused hundreds of young gymnasts as the former U.S. gymnastics doctor. It's a terrible situation. And in his most, so he's pronounced guilty and he's has up to, I think, 140 years in prison. Um, and his most recent court hearing, they brought up one of the fathers of the gymnasts who, has, uh, who, who was abused. And this father had two daughters who was sexually abused by Nasser. And the father was brought to the stand. And he was asked by the judge. I'm quoting it here. If you have some words that you would like to say, I would like to give you the opportunity to say them. And the father said, with faced Filled with grief and wrath, he said, I would ask, as a part of his sentencing, to grant me five minutes in a locked room with this demon. He's, uh, he already has 140 years. That's great. Just give me five minutes with him in a locked room. Of course, you know what he intends to do. And the court was silent. The judge said, you know, I can't do that. And then he said, then just give me one minute. <laughs> Give me one minute with him in a, in a lock. Can you, can you just do that? And the judge said, you know, that's not how the justice system works. And as soon as the judge said that, I saw a rage in his eyes that I've never seen anywhere else. In the courtroom, he lunged to Larry Nasser and he wanted to utterly destroy him right then and there. And the cops got hold of him. He wasn't able to do that. And as he, he was being walked out by the cops, he looked at one of the cops in the eyes and said, what would you have done if this is one of your daughters? Fathers, what would you have done? You'd be filled with wrath and anger and sadness. Why? Because you love your daughter. Because you love them. You cannot absolutely love something unless you hate the thing that destroys it. You aren't abs if you aren't absolutely angered by the thing that destroys that thing in which you claim to love, then whatever it is that was destroyed must have not meant that much to you. This father loved his daughters, and he was absolutely angered by the thing that destroyed them. You can't have a God of love without having a God of wrath. What does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world. You can't have a God that truly loves the world and yet isn't absolutely angered by the sin and death that's destroying it. 
Jesus saw the world and all he saw was death all around. He saw a tomb in waiting. He saw his children being ravished by sin and death and disbelief. And he was filled with eternal rage because he loved and valued the world. The saddest and angriest person in the story wasn't Mary and Martha. It was Jesus. Now keep this in mind. He wasn't angered by a bunch of non-religious, immoral people. He was angered by a bunch of self-sufficient religious people who rejected him because of their morality. It's blinded them from seeing the need to depend upon God. Regardless, sin is sin. He was angered by it. So what did God do? What did Jesus do? What's the solution? Because this passage presents us with a dilemma, doesn't it? How can God love us, truly love us, absolutely love us, yet at the same time not take our sin lightly that destroys us due to his love for us? Because if, if he isn't absolutely wrathful towards us and our sin, that must mean he doesn't love or value you that much. Because you can't love someone and not be angered by the thing that's destroying them. In our case, it's our own sin. But on the other hand, if he lets all that anger loose upon us and he lunges toward us like this father did to Larry Nasser, it would completely destroy us. And that wouldn't be loving either. So what is this God to do? Last point. Jesus, the suffering God-man. There's actually another reason why Jesus responds to Mary differently than he did to Martha. Um, one, yes, is to show his grief uh, and his wrath toward the death and, and sin toward our sin. But there's, there's another very significant reason why Jesus wept. It's to emphasize his humanity, his lowness. Who weeps? Surely not God. God is the great I am. He is holy, holy, holy. He doesn't weep. Humans weep. What's going on here? Jesus is trying to show his humanity. A, co a commentary said in regards to verse 35, when Jesus wept, behold, God veiled in humanity. Jesus answers to Martha, I'm the great I am. I am God up here. Jesus answers to Mary with tears. I'm human. I'm God that cries with you, that suffers with you, that's here who's assumed a human nature for you, portraying a beautiful picture here. And here in this picture that I just said, that the Bible just gives us, friends, lie the answer to our dilemma that we just said. How can a God who truly loves us and because of his love for us is enraged and demands justice for our own sin that destroys us because he loves us, but at the same time spare us from the awful justice and wrath that his love for us demands for him to have? What's the answer? What does this God of love do? He puts on flesh and he sets his eyes to the cross. John 9 says he sets his eyes to the cross like a flint. He focuses in, he zeroes into the cross. And what does he do on that cross? He took all that wrath, all that rage upon himself. Here's what God is saying on the cross. Your sin and the consequences of it, they're not light. They're eternally heavy because my love for you is eternally heavy. I will not just sweep it under a rug. It requires justice. It requires wrath because I love you. But because I love you, I will not unleash this justice and wrath on your head. It needs to go somewhere, but it's not going to go on you. I'm going to put it on my own head. 
you see? This is the only way he can free us from irreligious, immoral rejection of him, but also free us from religious self-sufficiency all at the same time. The cross, the God of life, is offering you life, received what I'm giving you so that you may rise from the tomb because I've entered it and have life, have true life that death itself can't take away. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the gate. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am, I am, I am. You know what that means? That means you're not. I am. And to Martha, Jesus asked in verse 26, to us, he's asking today, friends, do you believe? Do you believe that in him you're no longer condemned? You're no longer guilty. You're no longer dead. Let me end with something a preacher named Martin Lloyd-Jones said. He warned the church from dissolving the doctrine of God's wrath. I know it's an unpopular doctrine. I know not many people want to hear it. But if you pluck it out of the Bible and you delete it from the church, you will lose the true essence of worship. He said, look, if someone was at my house when I happened to not be there and he saw that I had a bill and he decided to pay it, I wouldn't know how to respond to the person unless I first know how big the bill was. See? Was it a parking ticket? Was it months worth of rent? Or was it 10 years of taxes that I forgot to pay? And then he said, until I know how much the bill was, I wouldn't know whether to shake his hand or kiss his feet. What was our bill on that cross? What did he pay for you? He took all of our hells he took the full measure of God's wrath and justice and he drank it all for you, for his glory upon himself. Worship. Kiss his feet. Give your life to him. For the whole realm of nature mine, that'd be an offering far too small. Love so amazing so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Pray with me. Father, God of life, 